A reading from God's word in Psalm 31. And you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies for those who pursue me. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love when I was in a city under siege. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you hope in the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to the messiness of life. And for this psalm that Angela read, God, would you help us today to open our hearts and and be attentive? We trust that when we gather in your name and your word is being proclaimed and your spirit is with us, that you are at work. And so, God, help us to engage with you today. I pray in these moments that you would use me. God, I'm available to you. And we thank you for your goodness, your loving kindness, your mercy. We are running to your arms today, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can't be like me, but be happy that you can't. I see pain, but I don't feel it. I am like the old tin man. Those are some words from the song Tin Man by the Avett Brothers. They describe a man who is numb to life's pain. They don't tell how he came to be in that state, but he just doesn't feel pain anymore. And the the chorus of the song is over and over again. It's this refrain where he says, I miss that feeling of feeling. I miss that feeling of feeling. Now, It's an ironic song because for most of us, we don't miss that feeling of feeling when it comes to pain. 
We don't want to feel pain. For us, it's the exact opposite. In fact, I'd be willing to argue that we do almost anything to not feel pain. Different cultures deal with pain and loss differently. In Eastern cultures, they, they do things like they will put on sackcloth or sit in ashes. In places like Italy, a widow might wear black the rest of her life to mourn the passing of her husband. In America, in, here in the West, we tend to deal with pain and loss by minimizing it and distracting ourselves. The most common way that we deal with loss and pain is through the distraction of addiction. Sometimes you don't think about addiction as a distraction, but it is. And statistics, most recent studies, they indicate between alcohol, illegal drugs, prescription drugs, pornography, gambling, and eating disorders, fully 25% of the population of the United States is addicted to something. And that list I just read, that doesn't include tons of other behaviors that we engage in to numb ourselves from the pain of life. Things like watching TV nonstop, working 70 hours a week, having a frantic schedule, running from one thing to the next obsessing over social media, shopping, food binges, engaging in unhealthy relationships. You know, we'll, we'll do about anything we can to avoid feeling pain. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what, what's the connection between all those things you talked about and pain? I don't see the connection. A wise mentor in my life asked me recently as I was sharing a, about a certain struggle I was having. He asked me, he said, Matt, what underneath that struggle are you trying to numb through this? And I had no idea, but it was a great question. And as I wrestled with it, I, I, I began to realize I really am numbing myself from a particular area in my life that is painful. How do you numb yourself? Now, when I talk about numbing um, you know, again, I, I just want to say with lots of compassion, lest you hear a, a judgmental tone, it is excruciating to face life wholeheartedly. I mean, Garrison Keillor, famous singer, author, he said, if life doesn't break your heart at least once a day, it shows a real lack of imagination, <laughs> which, which I love. And it, it, it's true. I mean, if you have a pulse and you're paying attention, you're watching the news, you're in relationship with people, and you're being honest, life is heartbreaking, isn't it? And so no wonder we numb ourselves in all kinds of ways. It's practically impossible not to, but we all do. I think all of us, and you probably agree with this, we all try to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. What I am realizing is more as a pastor, um, as I get to know people, so much of our life is spent trying to minimize, specifically minimize emotional pain, sadness, grief, fear, loneliness. We don't want the feeling of feeling. So what's the alternative? I mean, if the way of the world is just don't deal with it, what's the alternative? What does that look like? Does the Bible ha have an alternate way of, of handling our pain? What do we do with a broken heart, according to God's word? If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. You know, this is a psalm that comes out of the brokenness of life. And as, as David begins this psalm, he, he orients himself to God as his refuge. And this is really the theme 
of the psalm. Verse 1, David, he says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Now, the word for refuge is the Hebrew word hasah. And it's used over 40 times just in the psalms. In this psalm alone, it shows up three times in the first four verses, hasah. And it's, it's a refuge, specifically it's a place of shelter, a fortress. It's connected with imagery of safety. I was on a recent hike to Buffalo Mountain, and foolish me, I trusted the weather forecast. Should have never done that. And I'm hiking, and I've got my backpack, and I got my journal, and I'm going to have this awesome, meaningful time with God up on the mountain. So I I get up, and I literally, I sit down at the picnic table up at Tip Top on Buffalo Mountain, and then it starts to sprinkle, and then it starts to rain, and then it starts to pour down. I mean, pouring. And so I'm frustrated. I'm running down them, because I was not dressed for you know, for the conditions. So I'm running down the mountain and I was literally yelling out, I hate you forecast as I was running because I was so mad, ruined my plans. What I needed was a hussah. I needed a, a place of shelter. That's exactly what God is to David. In the midst of the storm, God is a, is a place of shelter. And it's not just about physical safety. I mean, look at the text. David is running to God as his shelter from emotional harm also. He he leans into God to protect him from shame. And so David, he continues and, and he says, Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. Again, God being David's refuge, that's the theme of this psalm. The rest of the psalm that we're going to look at today, it flows out of that idea. In fact, it's the application of that idea. It's one thing to say, God, you're my refuge. It's another thing to live into the reality of that statement. And that's what David does here. Now, you don't need a refuge when everything's going fine, do you? You need a refuge because life is difficult. And for David, things are not going well. I just want to read you a few descriptions of what he's dealing with in this psalm. Affliction, enmity, physical distress, social rejection, slander, conspiracy. David, he gives us several images to communicate how he's feeling in this psalm. Images like broken pottery, a besieged city, a lost child. David's not doing well. So to sum it up, David's heart, as he writes this, is breaking in a million different directions. And how David responds to his heartbreak is so instructive for us today. As we deal with grief, however little, however big, as we deal with our broken hearts, what do we do? How do we respond? David, in this psalm, he helps show us the way. So the first thing that we do with a broken heart that we see in the psalm is we give our feelings to God. What do you do with a broken heart? You give your feelings. Verse seven, I will be glad and rejoice in your love for you saw my affliction and you knew the anguish of my soul. Now this word for for know in Hebrew, it has a large semantic domain, which just means it, it means a lot of different things. But one of the meanings of that word note is a very intimate 
type of knowing, the type of knowing that a man has with his wife. David is saying, God is intimately aware of my pain. And it's not just his circumstances. He says, of the anguish of my soul, God knows. Do you believe that today, that that God knows he sees? Now, I found myself this week thinking, how is that a comfort? Because if God sees and knows, but he's not fixing it, what do I do with that? I mean, he might as well not be seeing and not knowing. As I leaned into that, I thought, okay, listen, there is mystery here. And there's mystery for those of you who are, you're in this verse right now. You, you, you feel anguish in your soul. There's mystery there. We don't know why God in his providence sometimes doesn't intervene or protect us. But here's what we do know. The alternative to this is unbearable. God being present in your pain but not cooperating with your agenda is one thing. God not knowing about it, not seeing it, folks, that's unbearable. For David, he says, no, God, God's here. God is with me. And then he, he continues and he reflects on his past. He says, you have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Love that phrase. Literally in Hebrew, that means a large room. You've set my feet in a large room, which is a powerful image for somebody who spent so much of their life in caves running. It says, God, you have put my feet in a large room. Now, he's still being attacked. You know, his circumstances haven't changed, but, but David, he's looking back on his life and reflecting how God has been faithful. But, but then there's a shift in the psalm. Look at verse 9. David, he says, be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. That, that phrase, my eyes grow weak with sorrow, it, it denotes extreme weakness. It's used by Job when he's about to, he feels like he's about to die. And David says, my soul and my body. In other words, every part of me is overwhelmed with grief. There is no part of me that is not feeling sorrow. And what do we learn about grief here? There's a couple things that are so important that we see in this text. The first thing we see about grief right here is that grief is not linear. Verse 7, David says, he's happy. He says, God, I'll rejoice in your love. And then verse 9, he's down in the dumps. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. What happened? Is this somebody dealing with multiple personality disorder? Like what? I mean, this, what happened to him? This is the nature of grief. This is how grief works. You know, Elizabeth Kugler-Ross did groundbreaking work about grief, and she, she said there's five stages of grief, and you've probably heard that before. But recent research indicates that not everybody goes through the same stages. Not everybody goes through all five and not in the same order. I know this from just being a pastor. I, I've talked to enough people in pain to know that there is no formula. When somebody loses a loved one, sometimes the first year is the hardest. Sometimes it's the second year. Sometimes it may be the fifth year. There's no, there, there is no formula. So as we interact with people who are grieving, as we deal with our own grief, we need to realize it's not linear. 
Surveys show that most people, if you're not grieving, you think that somebody, according to these surveys, people who are not grieving believe that those who've suffered loss should be over it in four months. In other words, you got about four months, and then I'm, I'm, I'm running out of patience for you. Can you just move on? But again, grief is not linear. It doesn't work that way. So part of what we see in the psalm, it just reminds us, okay, how can I be a compassionate person to those who are struggling? The second thing we see about grief here is that grief is not unspiritual. It's, it, it, there's nothing wrong that David has done. This is not sin. This is not a sign of weakness. I actually, this verse, my body and my life is consumed with grief. This is a sign of health because it's where he is. It's honest. It is so easy for us to develop a, a bad theology where we view grief and sadness as unspiritual. But being unaffected by grief is not Christian. Being unaffected by grief is stoicism. That's a, a, a pagan philosophy. I mean, Jesus, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, he didn't say, I'm not going to let this get me down. You know, everybody just trust in God. He wept, right? The Bible has so many examples where it says, no, we need to let sorrow have weight in our lives. There's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. Jesus was a man of sorrows. And healthy Christian spirituality is able to make room for both joy and sorrow. Again, the Bible says rejoice always. The Bible also has almost half of the Psalms that are laments. Healthy Christian spirituality is able to hold them both. They're not exclusive. And we are invited as the people of God to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So they're not even exclusive. So, so when we see David's grief, okay, we, we understand it's not linear and it's not bad. We keep going and David, he goes on and he just gets even more dramatic. He says, my life is consumed by anguish, my years by groaning, my strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I become like broken pottery. And what, what David is doing here in these verses, because again, it just strikes us, that is so dramatic. He is engaging in the language of lament. Of lament, he's processing his pain before God. Now, this kind of language is foreign to many of us. We don't pray like this, most of us. And there's several reasons for that. We'll kind of get into that. But, but most of us, our prayers are asking for things. They're prayers of petition. And there's nothing wrong with that. David does that too. But, but, but for us, here's usually our logic. We, we assume that God knows how we feel, right? He's God. He knows how I feel. I don't need to tell him that. So I'm going to use my prayer time to tell him what he should do. That's the best use of my time. For David in the Psalms, it's like the exact opposite. There's almost this assumption that God knows what to do. I mean, he's God. So I'm going to use my time to process to God how I'm feeling. Do you do that as a room in your life to, to pray prayers like, like this? 
And again, there's a lot of reasons why we don't do this. Our, our culture today does not value lament. You're not gonna find many Harvard Business Review articles about the benefits of lamenting. You're not gonna see on the New York Times bestseller list, man, all these books are about grieving. Our culture values progress and achievement and success. Winning, we wanna win, right? And, and this feels like losing, doesn't it? And frankly, who has time to pray like this? I mean, maybe you're thinking, I don't have time to pray like this and try to you know, pour out my heart. Do you know what's on my plate? And it's not only American culture, it's also our church culture that doesn't value grief or lament. I mean, we, we love verses, we're drawn to verses like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you went to a prayer meeting and you heard somebody praying like this, you would walk out. You would be like, that is weird. And at the very least, you would feel sorry for the guy. You'd probably judge him, you know? It's like, why can't you, why, why can't she just get it together? She's praying how she's a broken piece of pottery. But unlike our culture, again, the Bible, it, this is one of those areas where it's so countercultural. We have to just work just to be open to this, this reality. The Bible says, no. Grieving and grief and lament is really, really valuable. I mean, Jesus, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, not blessed are those who stuff it, right? Blessed are those who mourn, who are affected by life, who don't just power through and power up, who, who grieve, and part of the reason why the Bible values this so much is because when you and I enter into grief, when we face it and we feel it and we entrust it to God, we're transformed. We become deeper people. I mean, all of the people in your life, I'd be willing to guess that you would regard as a spiritual hero, as a mother or father of the faith, that you want to be like them, they have probably all suffered and been broken and grieved it makes us deeper people. When we go through grief and we respond in this way, we let go. The other reason why it's so important that we do this is because we become more compassionate people. I mean, Henry Nouwen, he says, the, the degree to which we grieve our losses is the degree to which we can grieve the losses of other people. And that's true. How could it be any different? If you can't be present to your own pain, then you surely can't be present to the pain of other people. So again, the Bible says, no, no, no. You give your feelings to God, and that is valuable. But David doesn't just give his feelings to God. David, he also gives his desires. What do you do with a broken heart? You give your feelings, but you also give your desires. Verse 16 Deliver me, David says, from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. He's quoting number six. He said, God, would you bless me? He's asking for God to bless him. He goes on and he says, save me in your unfailing love. Let me not be put to shame, Lord, for I've cried out to you. And in, in Hebrew uh, culture, the concept of shame, it wasn't just about your emotional state. It was about a, a situation of condemnation. 
of ridicule. David, he's saying, I'm being put to shame. I'm being shamed by all these people. And God, would you vindicate me? And then David, he prays against his enemies. Look at this. He says, but let the wicked be put to shame and be silent in the realm of the dead. That's pretty dark. Now, there's debate over whether or not David here is actually praying for them to die. I think given the context, he's actually just praying for their criticism to be silent, like it would be if they were dead. But there's other places where David does pray that. In the next verse, he says, let their lying lips be silenced, for with pride and contempt, they speak arrogantly against the righteous. What do we do with verses like this? What do you do? You're not going to have many coffee cups with this verse, you know. Let their lying lips be silent. You know, your kids aren't going to leave kids ministry today and be like, hey, I learned a new verse today. And, and here's what it is. You know, what, what do we do with this verse? Listen, with all of these parts of the Psalms that are messy and difficult, they, they, they remind us that God, again, God wants what is in us, not what ought to be in us. David is praying what is in him. This is where I'm at. And and God invites us when we come to him in prayer to give our feelings and give our desires, even if you feel like your desires are not holy or whatever, just to ask it. Just say, God, this is where I'm at. But for many of us, I, I shared how giving our feelings to God is difficult. Giving our desires to God is also difficult. Because how many of us feel weary after asking for something for a long time and feeling like it's not making any difference? I mean, some of you today, you have been giving your desires to God in a specific part of your life for years. It hadn't made a lick of difference in your mind. So what can give us the strength to keep praying? That's why this third piece is so important. We give our feelings, we give our desires, and David models this, we give our trust. We give God our trust. Now, this this whole psalm is an expression of trust because it's to God. Again, even when we pray messy prayers, if we're coming to God, that is an expression of trust. He's not writing in his journal to just, he's saying, God, I believe that you hear me. But, but trust is captured in its essence in what David communicates in the psalm in two verses that I want to highlight. And they're both so beautiful. Verse 5, David, he says, God, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And that word for spirit, it's really your life. It's, it's your whole self. And what's fascinating is this is the prayer that Jewish boys and girls would pray in Old Testament times every night as they went to bed. And they would pray, God, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, God, into your hands I commit my spirit, think about this. Jesus was probably praying that since he was a boy. And it was so formed in him. He says, God, into your hands I commit my spirit. The next verse I want to point out has a similar thread. Verse 14, David, he says, but I trust in you, and the I and the you are emphatic. He says, I trust in you. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. 
Now, two things David believes about God, and this is what enables him to trust him. He believes that God is personal. He says, you are my God. You're not the God of someone else. You're my God. And he believes that God is powerful. He says, all of my time is in your hands, God. Now, I want you to think about that statement, my times are in your hands. That means that David's times are not in whose hands? They're not in David's hands. See, it is one thing for us to say, God, my times are in your hands. It is another thing to, in view of God's past faithfulness and his present character, to say, God, I let go and I trust. And again, these times, it's not like things are going swimmingly for David. He's like, God, my times are in your hands and thank you for blessing me. I mean, he, he is in the valley here experiencing sorrow and anguish, and he says, my times are in your hands. God, I, I trust. And this is the most important thing we're talking about today. It is the most difficult part of this process of what we do with a broken heart. I give my, desi- my feelings, my desires, I give my trust. This is the most difficult, but it is the most important. Because if we don't trust, listen, Whatever is breaking your heart can define you. And make no mistakes, our losses can consume us. Maybe you know of someone who's gone through something and that just, it lingers and it consumes them. But if we face our broken heart and we feel it and then we entrust it to God, God can do something we never could have imagined. I love the way this psalm ends. Verse 23, David, he, it's like he's, he's been talking about his experience, and then he lifts his eyes and he speaks to us. He speaks to us, and this is what David says. He says, love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart. All you who hope in the Lord. Part of how God used David's pain was through this psalm. It was David writes out of his pain and God uses this psalm, think about it, to encourage millions of people throughout thousands of years. You have no idea what God can do with your pain When you come to him and say, my times are in your hands. Now, some of you today are saying, there's nothing redemptive God can do with this situation. I mean, maybe you're dealing with chronic illness or a fractured relationship, and you're just saying, there's no way. And I would say to you again, you have no idea what God can do with your broken heart when you put it into his hands. David had no idea when we face what's going on, when we feel it, we give God our feelings, our desires, and we give him our trust, God can do something we would never imagine. Now, as we end our series today, I want to pull out three applications from this psalm for us today. And really, this is from the whole book of Psalms. What what do we take away from this? How do we apply this to our lives? The first point I want to make is that spiritual maturity requires emotional honesty. 
for us to, to mature into mothers and fathers of the faith, into the men and women that God has called us to, we have to be emotionally honest. I, I love what Dan Allender says. He says, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. Now, I just want to say, because some of you, and if you've been here for this series and we've talked a lot about the emotional life, you're like, yeah, feelings, feelings, feelings. I, you know, I, I, I want to say, we don't follow our feelings, we follow Jesus. But following Jesus means we deal with our feelings because that's where reality is. That's how God comes to us. And David, listen, as the example, David never deals with reality by disconnecting himself from it. He doesn't do that. And maybe for you today, for the first time in a long time, you get real honest with God. You say, this is where I'm at. And for some of you, you're like, I have no idea what I'm feeling. I mean, if someone asks you how you're feeling, you say, good, which is not a feeling. Or you say, I'm tired or I'm hungry. You know, you have no idea what you maybe you're so used to stuffing down your emotions or numbing it, you really don't even know what's in there. Maybe you got so much deep down in there that you've kind of pushed down that you're saying, Matt, if I go there, I'll never come out. In other words, if I let myself feel, I'm never coming out of that cave. And I love what Pete Scazzaro says that the central truth of Christianity is that suffering and death leads to resurrection and transformation. You will not stay there. But if you do not go back, if you don't deal with what's in you, you'll get stuck. And so maybe today, again, wherever you're at, maybe you just say, God, this is where I am, and you're honest with him. That's what God wants. He wants the mess. And we cannot grow spiritually if we are not being honest emotionally. The second truth I want to point out is that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. If you, if you read this psalm straight through, it's easy to assume it all happened at once, but it's very possible. In fact, I think it's likely that David did not go from verse 9 to 13, where he's saying, I'm like a broken piece of pottery and my life's filled with anguish, that David didn't go from there to verse 24, which says, be strong and take heart. Very possible and likely to me that he did not go from there to there in one sitting. In other words, this is a process. And in some ways, this psalm is a picture of, of life. I mean, some of you today, you're in verse 1. God, you're my refuge. Some of you, you find yourself today, you're in verse 14. You say, God, I trust you. My, my times are in your hands. And You know, some of you today are in verse 12 where I'm forgotten like I was dead, and I feel like a broken piece of pottery. And maybe you're like, I'm in all three places today. I just want to say to those of you who feel forgotten, you feel discouraged, it's okay. If the Psalms teach us anything, it's that it's okay to not be okay. There is room in the Christian experience for deep sorrow and confusion. And there is room in this church. I love what Walter Brueggemann says, and I don't think it's always true, but I think he's right. He says, church isn't to be the happiest place in town, but rather the most honest place in town. Do we have that kind of a church where people can 
be honest, I'm not okay. I sure hope so. And I, I don't think that this means for us to have this kind of a church that people are just walking around weeping, you know, all the time and just sharing all my deepest hurts with anybody that I see in the cafe. I think what this means, though, for us as a community of faith is that there is room for people to not be okay and to still be a part of this community. Man, I hope that's true. And so for those of you who are struggling today, I just want you to know it's okay. And I'm so glad you're here. And the third point I want to pull out as we end is this, that valleys are open on both sides. The spiritual journey involves green pastures, Psalm 23. It also involves deep valleys, valleys of deep darkness, as David says. This psalm comes out of the valley. David's heart is breaking. He's, he's feeling like his life is wasting away. But David lays claim to an amazing truth in verse 19. And this is what David says. He, he says, how abundant are the good things that you've stored up for those who fear you that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. Notice he doesn't say, God, you've stored up great things for me as the future king of Israel. He says, for all of those who take refuge in you. And so here's what that means. Again, if we let this bear weight on us today, this is so powerful. Here's what that means. Your valley will not last forever. Now, it may feel that way, but that's not true. That valleys are open on both sides, and in the future for you are good things that are abundant, that God has stored up for you. It doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't make it where, man, I feel all better. You know, thanks, Matt, for that. What it does, though, it gives us confidence that God has not left us, that, that whatever valley you're in, God sees you, and God will see you through. There may be sorrow, and there is sorrow in this life, but joy comes in the morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your mercy and your love. And, and Lord, I just pray today, I pray that you would help all of us to know what it looks like to respond to this today. Lord, to give you our feelings, to give our desires and our trust. And this is not just an automatic process. Lord, we trust you and we just feel better. It's daily sometimes, Lord, of having to trust you again and again and again with our pain. And so, God, would you give us the courage to do that and the wisdom to know what that looks like. So, Lord, we just respond to you now. We come to you as feeble and as vulnerable as we are. We just pray you'd meet us and you'd give us the strength to keep going and to stay with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>